Well, if there is one thing that I think both children and adults generally agree on, it's that they don't want to be different. I don't know if you've ever gone clothes shopping for school with children, but you realize that there are only certain particular things that will do because they have to have the same set of clothes that everyone else has, the same types of t-shirts, the same types of pants, even the same types of baseball hats because they don't want to stand out to be unusual. And We adults can look at them and say, well, that's so immature. Why can't you not be beholden to the fashions of others until you walk into a large gathering of men and you see that everyone's wearing khaki pants and blue shirts. Or you see that all the ladies are dressed in very similar dresses because they don't want to stand out. There's a reason for this. But as we look at our text this evening, there is a reminder to the believer that it is actually good to be different. It is good to have a distinction made by the Lord. To be different can be good. And so as we look at our text this evening, I'd like us to see three things about being different. First, I want us to understand that God makes His people different. We are different because God makes us so. Secondly, we will see that the world tries to break down that difference. The world doesn't like that difference, and they try to break it down. And that's because, thirdly, we will see that the real difference is God. God is the one who makes the real difference. God makes people different. The world tries to break down that difference. And the real difference is God. Well, as we come again to the book of Exodus, let me just remind you where we have been. God has come... To deliver his people. He has come and he is using his instruments, Moses and Aaron. But it is very clear that the Lord has seen the plight of his people. He has heard their cries. And so he has remembered his covenant and is coming down to redeem them. This is not the rescue mission of Moses and Aaron. This is God himself rescuing his people. And so we have seen that God has placed a demand upon Pharaoh. And it is a demand that is threefold. First, that God's people must go three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to him. We saw this first in Exodus 3, verse 18. We see it again in our text. And then secondly, as Israel goes out, they must serve the Lord. We saw that in Exodus 4, and verse 23. And then finally... Israel is not only to sacrifice, not only to serve, but they are to hold a feast unto the Lord. Now, this is kind of an encapsulation of the Christian life. Sacrifice, service, and fellowship. And God is redeeming his people for life in Christ. And you may remember that Pharaoh's first response, his first reaction to God's demand, was an arrogant dismissal. He arrogantly dismissed Moses' request. You may remember his response was, well, who is the Lord? And why should I listen to him? Because, of course, Pharaoh's opinion was that he was a God. That he was a representation of a God of Egypt. And so why should he listen 
to some other so-called deity. To Pharaoh, the work that was going on in Egypt was more important than the service to the Lord. He said, why should I let the Israelites go to serve this Lord? They are needed here to work for me. And if you recall, he referred to God's command as being false words. He said to Moses, why do you come to me with these false words? And so what we are in the middle of here, in the ten plagues, is a battle. It is not a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. That's where we are tempted to look. It is a battle between the one true living God and the false gods of Egypt. In each one of these plagues, there is a specific attack on the deities of Egypt. You may remember that the first plague was upon the River Nile, and the River Nile was a god in Egypt. And we see how that battle went for the Egyptian gods. God showed his might, and he showed his power. The second plague was a plague of frogs, and it will not surprise you to learn that there is a frog god in the Egyptian pantheon. The third plague was a plague of gnats, And now we move into a plague of flies, of livestock, and of boils. And so what we see here in these fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues is God intentionally expressing the difference or the distinction he is making between his people and Pharaoh's people. And so the first difference that we see is in the description of, That is made about God's people. Verse 20 begins. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. And say to him let my people go. That they may serve me. Now this is in summary form. The battle joined here in Exodus. Now you have heard me speak before of one of my favorite films of all time. The movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. Every year I watch it because I love it so much. But the film, unsurprisingly, gets the main theme here wrong. The film treats this battle as one between freedom and slavery, between democracy and hierarchy, and that's not what's going on here. God is not concerned with getting the Israelites their democratic rights or even their freedoms He's not writing the first Bill of Rights here. No, he is making a distinction. And we see this right in verse 20. Let my people go. He is possessing his people that they may serve me. Or else, he says, if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies upon whom? Your people. You see, God is being very specific here through Moses. He's talking about my people. He's talking about your people. He is describing a difference between the peoples. But this difference also shows up in purpose. God has a different purpose for his people as opposed to other people. And God puts that difference before us in the plague. 
If you look at how the plague is described in verse 21, this is an interesting plague. We don't see the effects of it as much as we hear the the effects described and then we just assume the effects are carried out. But could you imagine this going on? You recall when we talked about the second plague, the plague of frogs, that this was not two or three frogs jumping in your garden. This was frogs croaking so loud you couldn't hear yourself think. You'd go into your kitchen and open a pot and frogs would jump out. You'd go in to grab food out of the pantry and frogs would be inside it. They were everywhere. And so here we have a plague of flies. And we might picture this like a very humid southern summer evening in the woods. You know, with mosquitoes that we swat. Or with bugs that are before our eyes. Or those, even those small, we call them the noceums that the Bible calls the gnats here in that previous plague. And and they're really annoying, aren't they? I mean, they can make you want to go inside. It's why so many of us don't spend nights outside. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about are large, stinging flies, so many that they fill the sky, so many that you cannot walk on the ground. Imagine that. Every step you take is crunching because you can only walk on flies. This is beyond distasteful. I can see a number of you cringing. And could you imagine having to live through that? And I think it's important for us to see this because this is no minor inconvenience. God is not doing the bare minimum here. He is showing Pharaoh his power. And he's showing his power in such a small thing. These are flies, but he has used flies to his power and such that they overwhelm the Egyptians. But it's very interesting. Where does the plague not hit? The plague is everywhere but the land of Goshen. Now, our text tells us that the land of Goshen is where the people of God dwell. But we would know this even from the book of Genesis. That the land of Goshen is where Jacob and his family settled in Egypt when they first came. When Joseph was near to the throne. And so it is very obvious to Pharaoh, to all of the leaders, and to every Egyptian. That there is a distinction here between Egypt and Israel. Could you imagine, I picture it in my mind's eye, that along the border, you know, when I was younger... I sometimes imagine that when we were in the the car and we were taking a cross-country trip, that I would somehow see a gigantic dotted line between states so that I would know I had gone into the next state. You know that doesn't exist. Most states have a sign that will tell you you're entering into their state, but there's no line. But here there is a line. Right up to the border of Goshen, you are beset by flies, You can't walk on the ground. They're in your hair, in your eyes, on your body, in your food. Everywhere you go and you take one step into Goshen, all is peaceful. All is fine. Because God has made a difference in purpose for his people and the people of Egypt. Now, this difference in purpose shows up in the way God describes what he wants for his people. Notice what he is telling Pharaoh to do is to let them go that they may serve me. 
The people of God are set apart, not for themselves, nor for their own good, but to serve the Lord. And this is true of the believer today. We are not saved for our own purposes. We do not even gather together as the church for our own good. No, we gather together to serve the Lord. We are saved to worship and serve the Lord. That is our purpose. Our chief end is to glorify God. And so the people of God are to worship God just as He has commanded. There is also a difference in this line in the master of the people. Again, the text tells us that the Israelites are to go that they may serve me. They are to serve the Lord, their God. The Egyptians are serving Pharaoh. They are Pharaoh's people. They serve him. They suffer with him. And so God says in verse 23, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. Now this is a very interesting word here, division. It's used three other times in the Old Testament, except in each other instance it is translated redemption. For example, in Psalm 111, verse 9, he sent redemption, the same word, to his people. Now, the commentators spill a lot of ink on this. Is there something wrong with the text? Have we not understood the meaning of the word? And as I think often is the case, when people get overly wound up about the text and thinking it's not secure, I think God is doing something intentional here. God has put a division between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt, but what is the source of that division? It's redemption, isn't it? That's what makes Israel different from Egypt. They are the ones to be redeemed. They are the ones to be bought out of slavery. They are the ones to be rescued. And so that's the division that God makes. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ tells us in the Gospels. That what divides mother and daughter, son and father, brother and brother, is salvation. It is the work of Jesus Christ. So there is indeed here a difference. God makes his people different. But the world doesn't like that. And so the world seeks to break down that difference. It does it first by refusing to acknowledge God. And this is seen by Pharaoh's continual rejection of God in the plagues. Plagues have already come upon Egypt and Pharaoh. You would think, as we stand here watching this epic unfold, that Pharaoh would get it. He's seen the Nile turn to blood. He's seen the frogs. He's seen the gnats. And he's seen that the only way to escape these plagues, is by having Moses pray to the Lord. And yet, in verse 25, Pharaoh calls to Moses and he says, Go and sacrifice to your God. Not my God. I don't believe in your God. It's your God. He refuses to acknowledge that God is quite simply God. The God of all people. And then next we see that the world often seeks to break down this difference by seeking a compromise for God. Pharaoh will allow Israel to go worship their God, 
He won't acknowledge that it's his God, but you could go worship your God, but you must do it after my fashion, Pharaoh says. Now imagine that. He's your God, you're going to go and worship, but you need to do it like I say. That's how we're going to play today. That's what Pharaoh describes. And so this is often the way that the world comes at the church The first stage of idolatry is not running after the world's gods, but it is rather fashioning God in the image of the world. Corruption of worship always comes before the abandonment of worship. If we think about the golden calves in Israel upon the division of the kingdom, they were set up to be the worship of God, but eventually it turned into full-blown idolatry. And so here Pharaoh's offer is very subtle because it speaks of toleration. One commentator puts it this way. Is it not uncommonly liberal on the part of the king of Egypt to offer you toleration for your peculiar mode of worship? Don't Christians face this every day? Doesn't the world attempt to blunt the force of God's command by appealing to a vague spirit of so-called toleration? That's the great cry of our day, isn't it? Toleration, toleration. And so doctrine and teachings become far less important in this sense than an appeal to avoid giving offense. The world seeks to break down this difference between God's people and the world. And the reason that they do this is because at its core, the real difference is not in people. The real difference is God. Because God is the one who is the actor here. In verses 22 and 23 of chapter 8, God is the one who says, I will set apart the land. I will do this. I am the Lord. The Lord will make the difference, the distinction in chapter 9, verse 4. God is clearly the actor. God is clearly in the midst of Egypt. God is in control. And so it's very interesting the way that the Lord approaches Pharaoh in these plagues. Do you see this in sequence from plagues 4, 5, and 6? First, God sends Moses to Pharaoh early in the morning to tell him, if you do not let my people go, this will happen to you. And of course, Pharaoh does not let the people go, and God sends the plague upon them. But interestingly enough, in the next plague, starting in the ninth chapter, the plague of the livestock... God goes one step further with Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. And then he says, tomorrow this will happen. Do you see the distinction there? Pharaoh's not given a space to obey the command. God knows his heart is hard. And so it is announced beforehand and the plague comes. Then let's look just a few verses further down, starting at verse 8 of chapter 9, with the plague of the boils. And God goes yet further. There, Moses does not even announce to Pharaoh what's going to happen. He simply walks into Pharaoh's presence and brings the plague upon them. 
God is showing Pharaoh and the Egyptians that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he doesn't need to bargain with them. The real difference is God. After all, Israel had no value in itself. God has told us over and over again that he set his love upon Israel, not because they were the largest of peoples, but because they were the smallest of peoples. They were the most insignificant. It was his determination that gave Israel value. And this is true of what God does throughout the Bible and throughout history. God exalts those who seem to be weak and he puts down those who seem to be strong. Now think about this, just how it plays out in the sixth plague. We see in verse 10 and verse 11 a distinction here. In verse 10, Moses and Aaron are able to stand before Pharaoh. Now remember, Pharaoh considers himself a god, the most powerful monarch in all of the known world. And here, this slave, Aaron, and this shepherd, Moses, stand before him with impunity because they stand in the power of God. And then do you remember who some of the most powerful people in Egypt are? We've seen them before. They're the magicians. Do you remember? It's, I almost want to call them the keystone magicians because if you recall, when a plague hits, the only thing they could do was make more of the plague. When the river was turned to blood, they couldn't fix the river. Their big trick was to ruin more water. And so, these are the most powerful people in Egypt. But do you see what the text tells us in verse 11? And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. Because the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. For all their power, for all their learning, for all their so-called might, they could not stand before God. Now that's just as true today as it was in Egypt in Moses' day. It doesn't matter how many PhDs you have. It doesn't matter how many followers on Twitter you have. It doesn't matter how much money in the bank you have. You cannot stand before God. God is the one who makes the difference. So what does this tell us as we conclude this evening? What is the most distinctive thing about the world? The most distinctive thing about the world is that it does not want anything distinctively Christian to be about the Christian. In other words, they're happy for people to call themselves Christians as long as they don't talk like Christians, act like Christians, or believe like Christians. They're happy to have the name bandied about. But they don't want anything distinctively Christian. Now, just think about this in our popular culture. Have you ever seen anything spiritual in a movie or on television? Have you noticed in that that the word Christ is never used? The word God may be used. Sometimes even the Lord. But you will never hear Jesus Christ's name used. Because the world doesn't want distinctively Christian beliefs and theology. The second thing that we can learn from this 
is that the Christian can be happy if he turns his back on all that engaged his heart and his mind in his unregenerate days. The Christian can find joy and peace in giving up what he sought before. In acknowledging that God makes a difference and that God distinguishes between his people. Now, how does the Christian do this? Because for many of us who have lived many years before we came to know Christ, there are a great many things that we do and are fond of and love. How do we make that distinction? How do we break with our old ways? Let me just give you four brief applications. First, by absorbing yourself with the infinite perfections of Christ. The more you think about Jesus, the less you will think about the things of the world. Because the things of the world do not compare to Jesus. Second, by meditating on the precious promises of God's word. As we read God's word, as we read his promises, as we take them to heart... Everything else fades away because we realize what our future is, what our hope is. It is founded on the promises of God. A third way that we can turn our back on our old ways is by ministering to the needy. There are so many around us who are needy. Widows, widowers, the sick, the infirm, orphans. We have opportunity to minister to them. And when we are engaged with them, we will not be worried about what we are missing out on. And then finally, and I think this overarches all of the previous three. The Christian can be happy turning his back on the world by pursuing prayer. By communing with God. By seeking God's ways. By praying that the Lord's promises would be sweet to him. By praying that the Lord would show him his ways. By praying that the Lord would give him opportunities to minister to others. These are ways in which we can not only see and acknowledge the difference that God makes between his people and the world. But that we can rejoice in that. God has made his people different. Not because of any value in them. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ this evening... You know him only by grace. It is not because of who you are or what you have done or what wisdom or skills you bring to God. It is only because God has set his merciful love upon you. And so when we see that difference, we cannot be proud. We cannot be self-righteous. Because we know that the only difference that matters comes not from us, but from God. Let's pray.